Let's talk about money on the back of that. We're finishing our series today, An Honest Conversation, and uh, we, uh, I think it's appropriate timing in many ways, coming off the back of the week we've just had, where the autumn statement came, the government's autumn statement came, and apparently, once again, we haven't got any money, and then we had Black Friday, and this weekend just gone, where between us as a nation, we managed to spend over two billion pounds of the money we don't have, and so we're kind of going to talk today, have an honest conversation about money, and to be honest with you, I need to start with a bit of an apology. And they start with a bit of an apology because we claim, I've said this so many times from the front, we want to be a church that, that bases everything we do on the Word of God and teaches and preaches through the whole counsel of the Word of God. And I can't remember the last time we explicitly and directly just talked about money, which is a bit of a problem because Jesus talked about it all the time. About half of the parables that Jesus spoke about were about money and possessions. About 15% of the things that Jesus talked about was money. We need to talk about it. And the problem we have with talking about money is money triggers in our culture, which is so conditioned by materialism and consumerism, money, 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 makes the world go around. It's so, um, it's so conditioned by it that money is like even the word money, the topic money, some of you feel uncomfortable right now. It triggers things in us. It, it triggers our dreams. Money can give us the things that we think we want, can give us the lifestyle that we want. If we have enough money, we can be whoever we want or do whatever we want. But money also taps into some of our nightmares. Can we afford that? What happens if that breaks? I can't afford another thing like that. What if I lose this job? What, how can I hold on to all of that? And the reality is some of us are spenders, some of us are hoarders, some of us are generous, some of us are selfish, some of us have loads of money, some of us have no money. But bottom line is we need to talk about money because money reveals what we worship. Money reveals that which our heart trusts. Jesus in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which he's basically saying if you want to know what your treasure is, if you want to know what you actually worship, look at your bank account. Look at where you spend your money. None of us would probably say that we worship money, but we do worship with our money. And we need to talk about money because the Bible does again and again and again. And we need to talk about money because there is a reality here. I'm just going to be straight up front and honest with you. If we're going to do all the things that we feel God has called us to do as a church, if we're going to plant all the venues and the churches that we feel God has called us to, if we're going to help the poor, if we're going to raise enough money to be able to support field offices in, in IJM and see children rescued out of sex slavery, we're going to need some cash. We're going to need some money. And I don't want to make any apologies, to be honest. I'm not going to for asking for it because I believe it's a cause worth giving to, to see lives changed and to see eternal destinies rewritten. And churches, sadly, often get it wrong when talking about money. Some churches underemphasize it to the point where they never mention it. That's not good. Some churches go the other extreme where all they ever talk about is the money. It seems like actually the main thing is not Jesus, it's the money. That's not good either. And we don't want to do either of those things. We want to get it right. And we're a growing and increasingly diverse church, and, and it leads into all sorts of funny conversations that I have, particularly about money, because some people I get into conversations with are kind of like, why are you guys so apologetic about money? Why are you so embarrassed about it all the time? The offering buckets come out, and you're like, well, sorry, 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 really shouldn't, just if you want to, you can, if you don't, don't worry about it, sorry, 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 we mentioned money. And others of us are like, are you, are you kidding? Should we even be taking an offering? And we have those extremes within our church. Some of us are very comfortable about it, and some of us are not. I could point you out right now, because I see you squirming in your seat, but I'm not going to do that, because I don't want to embarrass you further than you already are. I have my own story about money. Some of you have heard this. 
I moved to London not to come and be a church pastor. I had no desire for that. I moved to London straight up to work in the city and get rich. No other, no other reason. Why would a northerner want to come south other than that? <laughs> but lots of us do. That's why we all come. That's why I arrived. That was my story. And we arrived at church, and I'll be straight up, I did not understand the whole giving thing. Money into an offering, a sort of donation, sort of, yeah, well, it was a good week, yeah, I'll give some money. That kind of thing, I sort of understood that. But it was only when someone sat me down and explained to me in a very honest and forthright and blunt way about what the Bible actually teaches about sacrificial giving and trusting God with everything, not just saying the words, but trusting God with everything, including your finances, that I began to suddenly have this moment of, oh, God. this is what you mean when you say it's going to cost me everything to follow you, even my money, oh. And I began to read the pages of Scripture properly, and I realized very quickly as I actually began to look at this book properly, slightly ironic given I'd spent three years studying theology and missed it all, but I began to realize that Jesus really does deserve the first fruits of everything in my life. The best of me, the best of my time, the best of my effort, the best of my energy, the best of my focus, and my money. And I kind of grew up sort of thinking, well, hang on a minute, isn't that kind of concept of tithing, like giving 10%, isn't that kind of like an Old Testament sort of thing? But then I read Luke chapter 11, where Jesus criticizes the Pharisees, not for tithing, he says they're doing a good thing there. He criticizes them for neglecting justice and neglecting love of God. Jesus just seemed to assume that all believers would tithe. And then, I, and then when I really began to understand the gospel, probably for the very first time, and the incredible life-changing reality of the grace of God, how it is freely given and freely poured out on me, I began to realize I am way more blessed than any of these Old Testament saints. Why on earth then would I assume that I would be expected to be less generous than they were who never experienced the grace of God and didn't really understand it? And I suddenly had this revelation of what grace really is. Grace doesn't lower the bar. Well, I don't have to do anything now. Grace raises the bar because now God demands not just 10%. He demands all of me, everything I have. And I began to realize that when it came to my money, it wasn't so much how much I give. It was more how much I keep. And it was like, mind blown. It's not about, I began to realize it's not about paying God what I owe him. I am never going to be able to pay him back all the things he's done for me. But instead, I'm now going to pour out my entire life, every little bit of it, to see the kingdom advance, to see the church built, and to see the gospel proclaimed. I went from giving to there's nothing I would rather invest in. Then one day, standing in heaven, knowing that I didn't deserve it and I could not earn it, but then once I received that gift of eternal life, I then poured out my entire life, everything I had, everything I could be, all my time, effort, and my money, in order that others could hear the life-transforming message of Jesus Christ and that they could have their eternal destinies rewritten as well. That seemed like a cause worth giving to for me, that one day I will stand there and think, as a result of the things that I poured my life out and invested into, there are other people standing here right now for eternity worshiping Jesus that seemed worth it for me 
And then I began to read the pages of scripture where it started saying things like, God is Jehovah Jireh. He's like my provider. And I, and I began to also at the same time experience the daily encounter of walking with the Holy Spirit. And, and I began to take serious his promise that every single moment of every single day he would be with me. And I read the book of Acts and I, and I saw that God's agenda and God's mission and God's plans and purposes in the earth are worked out through ordinary people in ordinary moments, mainly on the whole through very ordinary means, and I began to get very excited about living every single moment with God and for God, and seeing that all the things that he would begin to do in my life, as I said, God, all of me is available for you to use. I'm going to invest all of myself in, and I literally began to think, wow, actually, being a Christian, walking with God on a day-by-day basis is actually pretty exciting, because what is he going to do today? And all of these things came together when we had our first child. And some of you will have heard me share this story before, but we went from two salaries to one. And to be straight up and honest with you, we did not do well. We ended our first year in debt. I'd never been in debt before. I, didn't, I just freaked out and panicked. I was like, Ham, we've got to sell the house. We've got to move. Everything's wrong. We're going to have to live in a box. We just, it was like, ah, everything's gone wrong. And then it was like, she just looked at me and said, just calm down a minute. <laughs> we'll, we'll sort something out. I said, we're not going to sort anything out. We're turning off, turning, running around, turning all the lights off. Like, sell that. We don't need clothes. Get rid of it all. All the rest of it. And then when I stopped being weird, I sat down and, okay, God, I, I'm learning to live now every day as part of this adventure, trusting you with everything. I really need to see your hand at work. I really need to see you as Jehovah Jireh. I really need your provision. And we prayed, and we felt God really encourage us to be as generous as we could be, and so we sought to do that in every single way possible, and boy, did we see God come through for us. Money in envelopes, money through the door, people handing us cards with cash in it on a Sunday. Someone gave us our Christmas bonus, which cleared our debt. Their, their Christmas bonus, which cleared our debt. Someone gave us a car. Money even fell out of the ceiling once, but you're going to have to come to the Christmas event to hear that story properly. <laughs> the miracle, come. It's amazing. We got out of debt, and we've never been back in it since. But in that time, we've had moments of plenty, and we've had moments of pain, and we've actually learned a whole lot of, load of stuff through it. What we've really learned is that God really does keep his word. He's not a slot machine. It's not about putting some stuff in in order that we get loads of stuff back. There's no promise in the gospel of material wealth. But when we seek first his kingdom, when we pour out our entire lives, every single aspect of it, when we don't hold anything back, when we don't try and make things happen ourselves, when we don't try and influence stuff and manipulate things and cut corners, well, that that was the only way that's going to work. But when we actually give him everything of ourselves, the best that we can give including our finance, is again and again and again, he has proven to be a good father. He has proven to be a faithful God. He has proven to be a God who provides and who delivers and who blesses, sometimes materially and sometimes not, but always in a way that is ultimately good for me. And we need to talk about money because we live in a world that thinks that what's good for it is more money. If I have more money, then it will be okay. If I have more money, then I will ultimately... It will make me content. We live in a world that thinks money is the answer to our problems. And money is important for sure, but it, it's not the answer to our search for contentment. Let's 
Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Hopefully this will come on the screen. About finding our contentment and money. And this is Paul talking about false teachers. We're just going to cut in on verse 5. He talks about constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Not just from this passage, but everywhere we read in the Bible, it's clear that money is dangerous. Not the money itself. Money is, itself is completely neutral. It can be used for good or evil. It's not the money itself that's dangerous. It's the craving. It's the desire for it that's dangerous. So Jesus, in, in Matthew 19, 23, with a rich young man, he says, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. In effect, he's saying that money's not evil, but it's dangerous because of how easily and how quickly we can be destroyed by it. In Matthew 13, 22, he says, the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. Money is dangerous, not in and of itself, but money is dangerous because it has a power to deceive. It's a liar. And we've got to be so careful handling money because it's a little bit like kind of handling live wire that can electrocute you. Think of these words here that, that Paul writes to Timothy. It's very strong language. Temptation, snare, senseless and harmful desires, plunge people into ruin and destruction, pierce themselves with many pangs. It's like a big neon flashing light that says, dealing with money, be careful. Don't be succumbed to the things of the world. Be careful. It's dangerous. Be careful of your desires. Be careful about what you're pursuing. Be careful because it's got the potential to cause you pr trouble, practically, but also emotionally and spiritually. And there's another sad truth here in verse 7. Money, Paul makes it plain that money will let you down when you need it the most. Just at that moment when you're about to die, it turns out it's not all that good for you how much is in the bank account. You're still going to die. It's like when a billionaire dies. How much did he leave? All of it. He didn't take any of it with him. We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Jesus pleads with us. I mean, literally pleads with us. Don't think that laying up money on this earth is going to be of any use to you in the world to come. Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money will let you down when you need it the most, when you die. But money will also let you down in this life as well if you invest everything into it. Ecclesiastes 5. We're going to do a series on Ecclesiastes. It's such a cheery book. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Money does not satisfy now. Now, some of you, if you're sitting there going, mm -hmm, my lifestyle suggests it does, I'm pretty happy. Well, here's the thing. No, it doesn't. Because yes, you can have a bunch of stuff, but you're not made to be satisfied with stuff. And so no matter how much stuff you have, you're never going to truly be satisfied until your heart is satisfied in the thing that it was designed to be satisfied in. David Foster Wallace, who was an atheist, in like a really, go and Google this speech. It's like the most incredible speech ever. He's an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. And yet he says, believing in God is far better than putting your trust in anything else. 
And he says this, worship money and you'll never have enough. It will eat you alive. Because you're always going to want more. You're never going to be satisfied now. And the thing with money is it often reveals something negative in us, like greed or fear or control or whatever. We talk about money and we get funny about it. Why? Because we've got these underlying issues in our hearts. But the problem is not money. You need to get over being weird about talking about money because there is no problem with money. It's the desires of our heart that there's a problem with. And so just like sex and just like power, money is not evil, verse 10. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money, actually, biblically speaking, is a very, very, very good gift from God that can be used for good or can be used for evil. Because money is what we use to show what we value. We worship with our money. And a key verse for us here is 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Money has a, has a great potential to cause all sorts of damage, and yet it's a gift from God. So how do you guard against it causing damage and embrace it as a gift from God? Well, the answer is here. With a heart that is content in God. We need to be so content, we need to be so satisfied in God that it doesn't matter if we have a lot of money or it doesn't matter if we have not a lot of money because our contentment cannot be determined by our circumstances. Because if our contentment, if our satisfaction in God is determined by our circumstances, then if we end up having little money, then it's going to destroy contentment in God by making us feel that he's stingy in some way or uncaring or powerless. And if we have lots of money around, then it's going to destroy our contentment in God because it's going to kind of make him, us think, well, we don't really really need to trust him because I can pay for everything I need rather than actually having to pray about it. We need to train our hearts and learn contentment. This is exactly what Paul did. Philippians 4 verses 11 to 13. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, learning contentment, genuine contentment, is the key to handling money well. And Paul gives us the secret of doing this in the previous chapter of Philippians. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, just put it in modern terms, when the stock market goes up and when I get a big Christmas bonus and and when everything's going really well and I've made that deal means I've made loads of money, he says, I find Jesus more precious and more valuable and more satisfying than my increasing money. And when the stock market goes down and you face a pay cut and everything's gone wrong and that deal's gone south and you've lost a whole load of money, he says, I find Jesus more precious and more valuable and satisfying than everything that I have lost. That's the key to contentment, finding Jesus more satisfying than when things are good or when things are bad. Money is a God or it's a gift. And it will always be a God unless we learn to find contentment in the true God. And when we do, we begin to treat money as it should be treated, as a gift that we use for the glory of God, recognizing that every good gift and every perfect gift is a, is, comes down from above from the Father of lights. James 1.17. So we need to learn some contentment. We've got a few moments left. I, I just want to share, I guess, some steps from my own life, really, of learning some contentment in this issue. And the first place is to begin with what you fear. And I think that's a bit of an odd place, but the best place to start when dealing with money is actually deal with our fears. 
This is exactly what Jesus does in, in Luke chapter 12 um, before launching into some absolutely brilliant teaching about money, wealth, and possessions. Well worth a read of your time this afternoon. He actually starts with these stern words in Luke chapter 12, verse 4. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more than they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. See, the Bible connects, and it's a bit difficult to get our head around a little bit, but the Bible connects fear and love and worship in a way that sometimes can be a little bit confusing. So the Apostle John says, perfect love casts out all fear. But then we've already read in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. So fear, we've got to understand this, in a biblical sense, is, is not, is, it's not like terror. It's, not, it's much deeper than terror. It's not like about intimidation or a bully or anything like that. What you choose to fear will control you. It's really important that we get this. What you choose to fear will control you. So fear and worry reveal us. They reveal the things that we love and we value. And in turn, the things that we love and value are the things that we worship. So for example, children, money, friendships, they become idols when we fear death, when we fear insecurity, when we fear rejection. And so our happiness gets all tied up in the well-being of our kids or the size of our bank balance or the health of our relationships, which is a problem because all of those eventually leave or falter or fail in some way. Everybody is afraid. Everybody fears something. We're afraid of suffering or loss or rejection or failure or embarrassment. And we all fear because every single one of us cares about something, even if it's just ourselves. And so what we do with our fear is we pour our resources, our energy, and our days in an attempt to protect what we love from whatever threatens it. And that effort really is in vain because all of these things ultimately leave or disappear or change. We basically, we waste life by worrying about the things we can't control and fearing the things that we can't avoid. Fear is unavoidable, which means what we fear is of great importance. The fear of the Lord is not a caution against some kind of abusive heavenly father with some big cosmic mood swings and unpredictable behavior. Fear of the Lord leads us to worshiping him, to acknowledging with reverence and awe that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, always-good creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. The fear of the Lord is the only thing that can prevent us from succumbing to all other fears that steal our lives away forever. You see, despite our best efforts, we can't control anything. But God can control everything. And we can trust him because he's infinite, he's eternal, he's unchangeable in his being, he's wise, he's powerful, he's got complete holiness and complete justice and complete goodness and complete kindness and complete truth in him. And so just like John Newton in the, in the hymn Amazing Grace sings, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." When we understand who God is, we now say, I'm going to fear him, I'm going to worship him. And as I begin to fear him, all my other fears, all the other things that I was previously concerned about, they, they, they are relieved because I'm fearing the one thing that actually does control everything, and he then is working everything out for the good of those who love him. 
we get this right. We fear God rather than fearing other things. And suddenly we're no longer having to fear these things and worry about them all the time. We're free to enjoy them. You're free to enjoy the size of your bank balance. You're free to enjoy your kids. You're free to enjoy all of those things of the world without desperately trying to cling to it. Because the one thing I'm going to place all my fear and concern and whatever is into God, not into anything else. To fear the money God is slavery. It never offers salvation. It never offers enough. It doesn't satisfy. But to fear the Lord is wisdom and freedom. So when an unexpected bill arrives in the post, when the car breaks down, when a major business decision looms, when bankruptcy hits, when, when two salaries is no longer, you can't cope, and all the rest of it, we are free if we fear the Lord to fear not. Because we know that our future, our identity, and our lives are in the stable, trustworthy care of his hand. Hebrews 13, verses 5 to 6 says, Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. That's a wonderful thing. If our hearts belong to Jesus and our lives are devoted to his plans and his purposes, we need not fear money. We don't need to worry about it. We don't need to avoid it. We don't need to demonize it. We can love God, fear him, love people, and use his money to enjoy life and, and serve him, rather than being constantly worried about it. Where do we fear? A couple of other things really quick in these last few moments is we need to steward it. And we steward money really by cultivating a humble appreciation for what we've got rather than dreaming all the time about the things we haven't got. Stewarding money starts in our hearts way before it starts with anything we actually do with our finances. It's an attitude, whether you have lots of it or whether you have none of it at all. Third thing to say is make it. And you think, well, hang on, that's a slightly strange thing to say. Ecclesiastes 10.19 says, money answers everything. Well, that surely contradicts everything I've just said. Well, no, it doesn't at all, because if we get our motivations right, if we're not looking to place our identity in money, if we're finding our contentment in God, then if God has gifted you to make money, then make it to the glory of God. Money does all sorts of wonderful things. Money creates opportunities. The more money, the bigger the opportunity to make an impact. Money provides freedom. It can't buy you happiness or lo love or, or salvation, but it can provide freedom for you and for others. Money actually accomplishes a whole lot of good. The bottom line is mission costs money. Sponsoring IJM to, to rescue children from sex slavery costs money, but boy, does it accomplish some good. Fourth thing to say is when you've made it, save some of it. Spend some of it and give some of it. Good, helpful principle, save 10%, give 10%, live off the rest. And if you can't live off the rest, change the way you live. It's really wise to save. It's a good thing. But we need to make sure we're saving in such a way that you're still trusting God and not your savings. We need to save without anxiety. You don't save because of fear of what the future might bring. We save as an act of stewardship so we can invest in something eternally worthwhile. We've got to spend it as well. Some of us don't really need any help with this, but we... We've got to think through the thing of what and how we are spending it. I once heard someone say, only spend on what you need, not what you want. And that seems like really good advice, except what you actually need is really very limited. And what you want is very subjective. So if you think about it, what do I actually need? I need air, which I don't have to pay for. I need food, which I do have to pay for. And I need water. I literally don't need anything else. Now, you might think, well, hang on a minute. You need clothing and you need shelter. But I don't need it. I could live naked in the woods somewhere. And, but <laughs> slight problem with that is I'd have to move somewhere warmer. And I'd probably have to avoid people. And I'd ha definitely have to quit my job. But 
but you don't actually need anything. Okay, we, we'll include clothing and, and shelter just because some of you are freaking out right now. <laughs> you don't actually need anything else. But you want it, and want is subjective. So how on earth do we decide what is good okay to spend on and what to not? Well, here's the key to spending, grow in the gospel. See, we don't have a set of rules. This is okay, that's not okay, this is good, this is bad. I feel really guilty about spending these money and going on this holiday and having this big house. Every time I come around, I feel the need to apologize for the size of my house. Why? If God's blessed you with a whole load of those things, some of you weird and guilty and get all freaked out about it. Don't have, did you go on holiday this year? Oh, don't tell them it was really nice. Just pretend it was terrible. What are you doing? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, Psalm 24 says. If God's given you it, use it and be blessed by it. There's some guide rules for you. Prioritize Jesus above everything else in your life. Prioritize other people. Prioritize his mission. Live within your means. Avoid debt like the plague. If you're in debt, get out of it. If you can't, if you're struggling with it, ask for help. We've got some amazing people in this church who are running debt advice stuff. We read structuring at the moment to work with other churches to make it bigger and better impact on our wider community. Get in touch. You need help? Get in touch. Get out of debt. Stay out of it. Live within your means. Don't be a hoarder. Don't be a cheapskate. Don't be a penny pincher. Share it. Guard against envy. Guard against covetousness. Ooh, that holiday. I don't want to ask him about it because I just feel bad about my holiday. No. Be intent in God and be delighted that in their contentment in God, God's blessed them in that situation. If you've got it, share it. If you don't, be part of a church where lots of other people share it too. Above all, honor God. And at the end of the day, the best way to avoid it is to give it. The measure of your generosity is the measure of your understanding of the gospel. Your understanding of the centrality of the core of the message of our faith. That God freely gave his son that we might have life. That God has been so incredibly generous to us that the only response is generosity full stop. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Not financially, but rich in the things of God. I've run out of time, but one of my favorite stories of illustrating this is the man forgiven 10,000 talents in Matthew 18. 10,000 talents was like, one ta- um, a single talent was like 20 years wages, and 10,000 talents was like, the 10,000 was like their biggest number. So it was basically a say, way of saying he had an infinite death, debt that he could never repay. And it comes to the day where he has to repay it, and he's dragged before the judge, and he's like, please give me more time, just more time to pay off the debt. And it's just a ridiculous scene, because it's an infinite debt that he's never going to be able to pay off. And everyone watching it is going, 10,000? You're never going to pay that off. Why are you asking for more time? That's so ridiculous. And then the story takes this unexpected turn, because the, this, the lender suddenly has this moment where he says, listen, your request for more time is denied, because I absolve your debt entirely. You're free to go. It's gone. And no one in the room can un- quite believe what's happened. Least of all, this forgiven man, he's suddenly freed in a way that he's never known freedom his entire life. And walking out of the courtroom, he's hit with this surreal realization that a whole new life has opened up for him and his family. And for the first time in as long as he can remember, he's free. And as he walks out of the courthouse, he sees a friend who owes him a pound. Well, it's not actually a pound, it's a day's wages, but we'll go with a pound. Who owes him a pound, and he says, hey, mate, you owe me a quid. 
And the guy's like, oh, I'm really sorry. I've, I can't pay it. I'll get paid next week. I'll give you it. No, don't be ridiculous. You owe me a pound. Give me a pound. And he demands that pound. And everyone listening to this story and watching this thing goes, are you for real? You've just been given an infinity debt and you're after that guy for a pound. And Jesus says, yeah, exactly. How ridiculous is that? And Jesus says, if you're not a generous person towards others, you must never really have fully experienced God's forgiveness and generosity towards you. You've got to realize that at a heart level, the eternity of the debt that you have been forgiven, it's impossible to truly believe the gospel and not become like the gospel. When we experience the grace that transforms us and we fully get it, it changes us into people who are willing to make great sacrifices to bless others with our entire lives. It's not about the number of zeros and then the bank account. The whole story in Luke 21, the rich people are putting loads of money in. Look at me. And the poor widow comes and she puts two pennies in and Jesus says what she gave is worth infinitely more than they gave. It's not about the size of zeros. It's about pouring out our lives for the glory of God. Listen, and as we start 2017 in a few weeks' time, we've got big plans and big purposes in this church. We want to launch another venue. We want to rescue some kids caught in sex slavery in Manila. We want to sponsor a whole bunch more kids in poverty in, in, in Kenya. We want more people to experience the life-transforming grace of God. We want to plant more venues, more churches. It costs money. We need it. Not coming begging, saying this is between you and God. <laughs> but there's a reality in this. God demands from us at first. And for many of us, we give so generously. I'm so grateful to be in a church that does this. Thank you so much. But some of the things we want to do, we're just bringing Tim, who leads the Elton site, onto our staff team so that that can go further. We're stretching our budget beyond where we've stretched it for a long time. And we're seeking God. We believe God's called us to a great work. I'm asking you, will you stand with us in this? You can pick up if you think, I'd like to know a bit more about this. I want to have a conversation. Hey, we're very open to have a conversation with you. You can pick up a Building the Mission booklet from Charlie or one of the blue t-shirt guys about what this means and what practical next steps are for you. But I want to be in a church that continues what we have for 40 years of incredible generosity with our time, our talents, and our treasure. And I want to see that multiplied many times over over the next 40 years. Let's be a people who excel in this grace of giving, just like we excel in so many other things.